Heavenly Father, we just are so thankful this morning that we can be refreshed with um, worship, uh, hear from your word, and just remember the emblems uh, that you've given us to um, remember you, Lord, uh, because it's by grace we are saved. Isn't that fantastic? And so we thank you for them. We need reminding about those things. And so as we uh, prepare to hear from Gary and your word open, we pray for him as he comes and speaks. Uh, let us be refreshed again by your word and your truth and let that sink into our minds and, and transform us, Lord, from inside out. Uh, we also pray for those that are um, currently in the children's programs, uh, the teachers and, and those that are teaching them. We pray for them, bless them and uh, the children involved. ask that you would uh, be with them and teach their hearts, Lord, to, uh, to love you uh, for who you are. And also we think of Brett and the team uh, with the youth today. We just pray for them uh, for extra support and encouragement uh, from the ministry they're involved with, Lord. Help them to, uh, yeah, just to, to see you in it and uh, just to see fruit also from the work they do. And we thank you for their um, hard work and determination and uh, effort uh, to love those that are um, in our community and to give themselves to that. So we pray for them uh, now, right now. So, amen. Craig, and thank you, Hokanui, for the privilege of preaching this morning. The idea of this message began at the Aratai Tent Mission to the Fairfield community in January. Well, the initial attendance is low, and having committed my full week, I figured I should leave the safety of the program and security of the intent environment to go into the community and encourage people to come or at least send their children. First couple of days, I visited the shopping centres of Fairfield and Davies Corner, handing out brochures, promoting the various activities and identifying the mission with Jesus Christ. What I was... Uh, aware of was how out of place I must have looked. As if wearing my homie cap backward would disguise the obvious cultural divide. What's this honky who looks different, dresses different and talks different doing in our hood? Although many people said yes, they would check it out, I didn't see any of them visiting the tent. So the following couple of days I changed tack going directly to the homes in the streets around Fairfield Park, door to door. This only raised another issue and potentially more distrust. Which car will I take? Will it be the Shelby F-150, the Range Rover Sport or the brand new Kia? First day I took the Kia because it was least pretentious and we'd already stoved the back end so it was looking half wrecked. The second day, I rode a push bike, wearing black trousers, a white shirt, and a little badge that said Elder Gary. No. <laughs> but I did ride the push bike. Between dodging ferocious sounding dogs, being scoped from behind curtains, working really hard to initiate and maintain conversations, praying between houses and checking whether my car was still there, I saw everything you would expect and probably more, as well as the realisation that if I lack trust, why should they? Nobody said no to hearing why I was at the door. They were interested, seemed appreciative, were friendly, doing life, and on the most part, doing life hard. I saw overcrowded houses, drug dens, the occasional half-decent car, 
and no new furniture. Always knowing that after my privileged insight into Hamilton poverty, I would drive home to a big stake and a comfortable home on the west bank of the Waikato River. I wrestled with the divide that I don't often have to confront and asked God for scripture that would make sense of this and lead me in my response. The passage God gave me became the following morning's Aratahi devotion and for whatever reason, the embryo of the sermon. Today, we will go where the text takes us. There are insights to material divide as well as spiritual divide. There are insights to inequity and human suffering as well as eternal justice. We will answer the question, not why is there suffering and poverty, but why doesn't God rescue his children out of it? We will also gain a unique insight into the question, what happens when we die? So right now, can we stand together as I read from the the Bible, Luke chapter 16, from verse 19. Let's stand together. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendour every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over here from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Thank you. We are introduced to two men, one extremely rich, one extremely poor. Only Lazarus' name is given. If this is a parable, it is the only parable where a person has a name. There is no reason why Jesus could not have drawn this account from the lives of two real people. Now, I'll put this on the table early. The poor man wasn't righteous because of his poverty any more than the rich man was unrighteous because of his wealth. 
Each person has dealt a unique set of circumstances and attributes over which they have no say or control, such as your existence, the year you were born, the colour of your skin, your gender, your nationality, the family you were born into and their circumstances, what you look like, your early childhood, whether your parents divorced, whether someone close to you dies, whether you are born into wealth or into poverty. And these circumstances and events of which you had no say or influence in and of themselves do not determine your eternity or your opportunity. They become constructs within and around the life you live out. What has eternal consequences is how you respond to the circumstances and the constructs. It's like a hand of playing cards. God deals you the hand. Your responsibility is the way you play the cards you've been dealt. No hand dealt by God in and of itself is better or worse on the eternal scales of divine reckoning. The poor man was saved because he had faith in God. And the fruit of that faith was evident. The rich man was not saved because he had misplaced his faith into good works and there was no evidence of fruit. He misplaced his confidence in his wealth as evidence of the blessing. And he was wealthy to the extreme, opulent. He had an abundance of everything and boy, didn't he want everybody to know it. He flaunted his wealth before others, dressing in purple and fine linen, the clothes of royalty, highly prized and esteemed fashion, the ultimate in design labels. I'm not talking $2,000 denim jeans. Fashion of the quality that would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's economy. And we aren't talking the occasional splurge or the big night out. This was habitual, every day. He not only flaunted his wealth before others, he personally indulged in the excesses of it, joyously living in splendour every day, in euphoria, intoxicated in his own extravagance. His possessions, his power, his pursuits, his public image, his popularity. That's how he did life. He was living the dream. And didn't he want everybody to know it? And by default, that would have included Lazarus, a man whose life experience was at the opposite extreme of the spectrum. You couldn't get two greater extremes. Lazarus wasn't living any sort of a dream. He was living a nightmare. Lazarus was poor, reduced to beggarly, needy, dependent on the charity of others, unable to provide for himself, pitiful. Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate, presumably because he couldn't carry himself there. He couldn't walk, he couldn't work. He was absolutely dependent on, the need, on, on others for his basic needs. So his friends who didn't have the means to provide for him either, laid him at the gate of someone who could. The place where everybody passed in and out, the place 
where Lazarus would be seen and his needs met. Deuteronomy 15 and 7, a reading from the King James Version. If there be any poor man of one of thy brethren, a fellow Israelite, within any of thy gates, the places by which people come and go, in thy land which the Lord God giveth thee, within Israel, thou shalt not harden thy heart or close thy hand from thy poor brother. You see, there existed a moral obligation by law to care for the poor at the town's gate. Lazarus was not only poor, he was afflicted. His body covered with sores, ulcers, open and untreated, exposed to the dust and the elements. Folks, this is not dependency. This is deprivation. And Lazarus's longing to be fed suggests that even at this gate, he wasn't getting enough. Note that Lazarus longed to be fed. He desired, he lusted for the crumbs even. But longing is not the same as begging. Lazarus, even in this pitiful state, trusted God to meet his needs. He displayed dignity in his suffering. He didn't need to beg, his need was obvious. And, that, and Lazarus's expectations weren't that high, were they? He was not desiring of the food on the table. He was desiring what was under it. So what was Lazarus' prayer? First he wakes up, then he pinches himself. I'm alive, I'm alive. Thank you, God, hallowed be thy name. And then he continues, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give me this day my daily bread. Give me enough crumbs for today, Lord. Amen. Crumbs. Crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. And that day, food was eaten by the hands, with hands. And pieces of bread were used to wipe down oily or fatty fingers. And the guests would discard those pieces of bread under the table. That's what the Canaanite woman referred in Matthew 15, 27. Even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Lazarus had competition. Besides the dogs. Literally, instead, the dogs. These dogs weren't the rich man's poodles. These were feral dogs roaming the streets more like the dogs you see in Fiji. And the dogs would often get to the crumbs ahead of Lazarus. This was a cruel game, only it wasn't a game. Lazarus, the person, a living soul, is the victim of unimaginable injustice and heartbreak in the food chain he comes below the dogs. And as if to add insult to injury, after their fill, the dogs would wander past Lazarus with impunity 
licking at his ulcers and open sores, extracting protein that Lazarus didn't have a surplus of. This is the next level, isn't it? This is deprivation unseen in New Zealand. You might find it in India. And behind it is an Eastern philosophy that a person gets from God what they deserve, karma. And that's the philosophy that this man, a rich man had brought into, that the person is paying the price of a past life or a generational sin. Therefore, there is no conscience or moral obligation to respond or even to care. The disciples asked that question, didn't they? In John chapter nine, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? By his very appearance, Lazarus did look cursed by God. There was nothing about him that would attract you to him. Yet he was a child of God. We've seen the evidence of fruit and most compelling of all, Lazarus goes to heaven. That puts it beyond all doubt, doesn't it? It's a very binary thing, male or female. Oh, sorry, how'd that get in there? It's a very, I'll start again. It's a very binary thing, isn't it? Heaven or hell, in or out, saved or unsaved. The indwelling spirit of Christ is the ultimate marker. Yes or no. A person has the indwelling spirit or they don't. There is no confusion in the mind of God who his children are. And so God brings his child to the gate of the rich man who is also a Jew, a fellow Israelite, a religious man, a Pharisee who knew the law well, including Deuteronomy 15, 7. This man was the answer to Lazarus's prayer. He had the resources to feed Lazarus, resources entrusted to him by God. This was the man who could invite him in, dress his wounds, clothe him, and seat him at his table. You think the focus of the story is Lazarus? It's not. Lazarus's soul is secure. The focus is the rich man. That's Christ's concern here. This very religious man thinks his soul is secure, but he's going to hell in a handbasket. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus had just said to the Pharisees, verse 11, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? We see from verse 15, the Pharisees were lovers of money. And in verse 15, that they were more concerned about the approval of people. The Pharisees were in Jesus' sights. And this man was the Pharisee to a T. And at his gate, the two worlds collide. To Lazarus, the rich man is the answer to his most basic needs, food and shelter. But instead, the rich man is a well without water, a cloud without rain, a dry cistern. So why is Lazarus even there? Because to this rich man, Lazarus is the gospel. Lazarus can meet his most basic spiritual needs by revealing the true intent of his heart. Lazarus is the catalyst to his repentance. 
but the rich man fails to repent. And God's extension of grace and mercy and patience to the rich man just brings further suffering and deprivation to Lazarus. Each time the rich man walks past his gate, Lazarus is there looking at him. Their eyes meet. The need is obvious. God quickens the rich man's conscience. God's fibre optic cable to every soul. The law written on the human heart. The law written in Deuteronomy 15.7. If there is a poor man among you within thy gate, thou shalt not harden thy heart, nor close thine hands from thy poor brother. But instead of reaching out to Lazarus, he turns his face away. You know what he's thinking? Lazarus is just an embarrassment to me and my guests, an inconvenience. If I provide for Lazarus, more beggars will turn up. If they see that Lazarus gets nothing, they know it's a waste of, of time joining his line of one. And if I take him away, another will simply replace him. Anyway, Lazarus deserves what he gets. He made his bed, he can lie in it. So I'll just put up with him there. So he does. So what does the rich man pray? God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, tax collectors, or even like that old coot Lazarus lying at my gate. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. So we discover that Lazarus is not at the gate for what the rich man is giving him, but for what he is giving the rich man, opportunity. An opportunity for the rich man to soften his heart and open his hands to demonstrate fruit in keeping with repentance. And this is the part of the law that the rich man kept tripping up on. This gospel was his stumbling block. And we see that again in Mark chapter 10, where a rich young ruler comes running up to Jesus inquiring as to what he might do to, to inherit eternal life, to which Jesus lists the commandments. All of these I've kept from my youth, the rich young ruler replies. And looking at him, Jesus felt love for him. One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. This is just a paraphrase of Deuteronomy 15.7, isn't it? Soften your heart, open your hands. Different men, same condition. At this, the rich young ruler turns away weeping, for he had much property. Do you know that God calls and empowers his own children to suffer, to go without, to even be seen as fools in order to bring opportunity to those who reject God? Even when that opportunity may be to further reject God. Channels of God's love, patience and grace, and in so doing, revealing the intent of the hearts. 
Lazarus' suffering and rejection was the rich man's opportunity in the same way that Isaiah's suffering and rejection was Israel's opportunity. And the same way that Christ's suffering and rejection is your opportunity. It's not unusual for God to extend grace and patience and compassion and kindness and opportunity to those who continue to reject him at the apparent expense of his own servants. Uh, read Isaiah 6, 8 to 11. How long, Lord, will I tell a people who don't hear, don't see, don't understand and don't respond to which God replies until there was no one left? So it was for Lazarus. God's extension of grace and opportunity to the rich man was Lazarus's cost. Eventually, Lazarus died. I wouldn't imagine his life expectancy was that long. Maybe he lived to his 30s. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that Lazarus's death may have marked the end of this rich man's opportunity. Needless to say, the rich man also died, which put the end of opportunity beyond all doubt, didn't it? And what happened next didn't follow the rich man's script. Lazarus was the man who appeared to exist under the curse of God and the natural progression of that curse was supposed to be hell. The rich man practices religion and appeared to enjoy the full blessing of God, health, wealth, prosperity, and the natural progression of that was supposed to be heaven. Two things of which we know nothing or very little are the exact time and circumstances of our death and what is on the other side of it. If we could see beyond the grave, if we could see heaven and hell, it would change everything. It would be a powerful motivating force by God's design that we come to Him not by fear through seeing, but by grace through faith. Jesus spoke far more warnings about hell than He provided insights to heaven. And this is the rare text that tells us what happened next. And it is haunting. Lazarus died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's heaven. Ushered into the presence of God. And that is death for the believer, isn't it? He falls asleep trusting God for his next meal and wakes up attended to by angels. This day you shall be with me in paradise. The rich man died and we are simply told he was buried. No comfort for this man. His soul handed over to demons to be transported to hell. It's a strange thing that many, believe, many believers fear death when they shouldn't, while unbelievers don't fear death when they ought. I know I've used up most of my time talking about the living in the first four verses. 
It's not that I'm afraid to talk about the subject of hell. I just need more time that I don't have for the next seven verses. And I'm sorry if that's a cop-out. Hell is not my idea. It's God's. Neither was it designed for people. It was created for Satan and the rebelling angels, demons. Do I believe hell is a literal place that exists? Yes, I do. I believe that. The rich man begs for water to relieve him from the agony of the flame. Tangible relief. Water suggests tangible suffering. Heat. And hell's existence doesn't at all diminish the perfections of God's nature and character. In fact, it amplifies them. Mercy has no meaning without wrath, does it? Hell cannot exist apart from God. God is the consuming fire. God must be present in some form to sustain it. He is present in in attributes of his character that we are not familiar. His justice, the fury of his wrath, the consuming fire. Separation from the presence of God in hell is not the absence of God. It's separation from the attributes of God we enjoy and desire. The perfections of God we prefer, like patience, grace, mercy, and kindness. And now Lazarus enjoys all of these and much more. The rich man enjoyed these good attributes and spades while he lived. God even gave him the desires of his heart. And that's now his problem. God gave him the desires of his heart. Child, remember that during your life, you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. The imbalances that met at the rich man's gate were always on a limited timeline. The clock was always ticking for both of them. The moment they died, everything would change, and it did. Lazarus, set free from his present suffering and into the glory now revealed. Set free from what Paul called Momentary light affliction. And to what Peter refers, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, reserved in heaven for you, in which you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, various trials. I don't think Lazarus is by Abraham's side complaining about feeling hungry or that his sores itched. And if the rich man was given an opportunity to swap his life of luxury and splendor to live a life like Lazarus's, a little lower than the dog's, 
If that's what was required to come to his senses, soften his heart and repent like Nebuchadnezzar, I think he would say, yes, don't you? I'm going to close with a short story about another rich man and another poor man. This rich man is even richer, even wealthier, even more powerful. This man was lacking absolutely nothing. He lived in glory and splendour. He wasn't masquerading royalty, wearing purple and fine linen. He was royalty. The king of all that exists. The king of kings. In fact, he was equal with God. And his name is Jesus. And the other poor man was even poorer than Lazarus. Even needier. Afflicted by a disease that knew no cure. That disease was sin. Unable to help himself, he was a prisoner, desperate for the bread of heaven. He also was laid at this richer man's gate. And there he longs for the crumbs that fall from the richer man's table. Crumbs of undeserved grace. Crumbs of undeserved forgiveness. And this poor man also has a name. You and me. You and me. So what did this richer man do differently? He did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He turns his back on his wealth and glory and riches and he leaves the mansion that presides his kingdom and he goes out to the gate where you and me lays. And he lays down beside you and me. And nobody recognises him as the richer man. Even you and me doesn't. Because he has emptied himself of the trappings that come with his kingdom and glory. And he has taken on the form of a slave and the appearance of a Lazarus. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. And like Lazarus, he was despised and forsaken by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was hungry and they did not feed him. He was thirsty and they gave him no water to drink. But he doesn't complain because he is without sin. And the more perfectly he loves his accusers, the more they hate him. The more they can't stand him. This is no Messiah, they scream. This is no son of God. And so they begin to beat him. Lying there outside the gate. And even the poorer man, you and me, picks up a stick and joins the accusers. And there he is killed outside the gate. But you know what? Death cannot hold this man, Jesus. 
and he raises himself from the dead. And in so doing, he reveals his kingdom and his riches and his power and his glory. And he invites all of those who accused him and rejected him and beat him and killed him, all those poor and deprived, spiritually diseased prisoners of sin, he invites them into his mansion. Come into my kingdom. Come into my father's house. Yes, he invites you. And if you believe in his name and you receive him and come in, he heals your diseases and he clothes you in fine linen and he says, all that is mine is yours. And he seats you at the table to eat the feast that's above it. And there you dine forever with the King, Jesus. Let's pray now. Lord God, oh, the depth and the riches of both your wisdom and your knowledge. How unsearchable are your judgments and unfathomable your ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become your counsellor or who has first given to you that it might be paid back to him again? For from you, And through you and to you are all things. To you be the glory forever. Amen. 